0: I am not saying what doesn't kill you makes you stronger because in my professional experience, what doesn't kill you usually makes you miserable. The good news about this is that we don't have to just wait for hard things to happen to us and the people that we love. We don't have to just wait for difficulty to come at our kids or come at us and then hope that it makes us stronger. That's a little like training for a marathon by losing your car in the parking lot and wandering around looking for it. It's not efficient and it's annoying as heck. The good news about resilience and mental health is that we can, we do get stronger when we go through difficulty almost always, even though it's awful, but we can build that resilience and mental health on purpose, just like we build our physical fitness on purpose through exercise.
1: Hey there, it's Michelle Lamoureux, and welcome back to the Good Life Coach Podcast. Happy you're tuning in today because you're going to be learning about how to cultivate resilience. According to today's guest, we've been told to avoid stress so much that experiencing stress feels like its own failure. On the show today is resilience expert, Dr. Deborah Goboa also known as Dr. G, who worked with organizations and businesses to identify the mindset and strategies to transform stress into a tool that builds mental health. And I'm so excited that you're listening today so that you can hear the tips and strategies that she shares to develop resilience, both in yourself and in your kids. Dr. G is a leading media personality seen regularly on Today, Good Morning America, and is a co-host and the resilience expert for The Doctors, and she's also delivered two TEDx talks. She's also featured frequently in The Washington Post, The New York Times, Forbes Magazine, and other media outlets. All of the show notes for today can be found over at thegoodlifecoach.com forward slash 138. So let's get into the show. Here we go. Welcome, Dr. G. So happy to have you on the show today. Thank you very much for having me, Michelle. Well, resilience is an important topic, one that we hear a lot about, but it's different to navigate, especially when it's for yourself, for your children. So very grateful to have your expertise on the show today to dive into how we can build resilience for ourselves. I love defining terms so that we're all kind of talking from the same place. Would you define resilience in your words? Yeah,
0: so I want to I wanna ask people to sort of think for a minute while they're listening or watching to define it for themselves. And what I hear most from audiences, especially in the corporate world, is the ability to bounce back from difficulty. And I would argue that that is 100% true if you're a rubber band but people are impacted by every change that we navigate everything we experience you know good bad doesn't matter we are fundamentally changed a little bit by everything so for people the definition that i use that a lot of people use that i use for resilience is the ability to navigate change and come through it the kind of person you want to be or when i work with companies the kind of organization you want to be so you know true to some sort of either personal mission or brand or Integrity is another word that we sometimes use, but resilience is the ability to navigate change, not just difficulty. That idea of bouncing back after difficulty, that's I think a better definition of the word grit. Hmm.
1: So facing
0: adversity, but there's change that isn't negative, that isn't a struggle or an obstacle. And yet, all change requires resilience. Even the good stuff, even the stuff we pray for, work towards, want, dream about. All change requires resilience because all change causes stress.
1: Oh, I love, and I love the distinction between that and grit, because I think a lot of these terms kind of get blended together. And it actually, I was going to ask you, maybe I'll ask you now, is where do you see confidence and resilience going together? Okay, so I'm going to try not
0: to get too wonky in my answer. But uh, the reason that I speak about this is because for the last half a dozen years, I, as a physician, I've been doing a lot of research into what is resilience. We've defined it. And I don't mean to call that into question. That is solidly the definition I use. But what are the pieces of the puzzle? When we talk about resilience, what does that mean? So I, I uh, undertook an investigation of the five scientifically validated resilience tools that exist for adults. If you got online right now, Michelle, and you Googled resilient scale for adults, or how resilient am I? Yeah. You would probably very quickly in your search come up with at least one of these five validated tools. And they all ask somewhere between four and 38 questions of you. And then at the end, give you a score. Makes sense. You've done, yeah. you've done quizzes like that about other things. Yeah. I looked at the scientifically validated scales, put all the questions together and said, what are we asking about? And it turns out we are asking about eight skills and eight attributes. And confidence is one of those attributes. That's the very long answer to your very clear question. (laughs) But confidence is one, but only one of those eight attributes. And of those eight skills and eight attributes, the thing that I found most encouraging is that all but one of those 16 items can be grown. They're not a fixed commodity. They're not outside of our control. The one that is outside of our control is our past experiences.
1: Right. Because life happens and right. we have so to navigate past experiences, it. Experiences, yeah.
0: uh, you can you can contextualize them a little differently. And I think that therapy is really useful and all kinds of things are really useful for that, but there's nothing you can do about that. You can't intentionally change or seek out your past experiences. So we let that one be. And yet, the reason I got so interested in this in the first place is that as a then young, newer doctor, I kept noticing that as important as I do believe it is, and I'm a practicing physician, for you, like Michelle, when you go to your doctor, it does matter if you have someone that you trust, that listens to you, that has a good fund of knowledge and can diagnose things and knows treatment options. But it turns out that's not the best predictor of your well being. It's a good predictor of if you will get better better in any particular disease state, but it's not a good predictor of how you will rate your well-being. It turns out that there are some gaps between how our health looks on paper and how well we are. And one of those gaps is made up tremendously by this thing we call resilience. So as a family doc, I felt like, okay, it is my job to help people be better and to prevent illness that's preventable. But what about this gap? How do we teach it? How do we grow it? How do we develop it? What is it? And that's why six, seven, okay, maybe nine years ago now, I got really into this, both as a parent, how do we grow it in our kids? I have four sons myself, and I'm like, you know, how do we, I can't protect them from every bad thing that's going to happen. So how do I make them ready for those difficulties and for change? And then I was like, wait, yeah, kids aren't enough. How do we do that for ourselves? How do we do that for our communities, for our company for our society.
1: I love it. And I'd love to unpack some of that on the show today, you know, get some of those tangible (laughs) tips because, um, you know, many of my listeners are parents. And even if they're not, like you said, as adults, we still need to have resilience, navigate things. And if anything tested our ability to manage stress and gain some resilience, it was the last 13 months for sure.
0: Yeah. Anybody who was feeling super cozy 14 months ago.
1: Definitely got to shake up. <laughs> right, for sure. Well, actually, I do want to ask a little bit more about your own story. So, I know you're a single mom. You re- you're raising four boys, as you mentioned. Yeah. There was a point in your career, though, where you realized, you know, everyone kept telling you, you know, don't stress, don't stress, and you're like, actually, this is not really good advice. What was sort of that tipping point for you, where you know it actually led you to to develop your own consultancy around teaching people this very important skill? Well, of resiliency
0: the the first tipping point for me was before I had kids. And before I was a a full-on doctor, it was in medical school because to I came to medical school from a non-traditional path, as so many people now do. i was um I worked professionally in theater and television for some years. And then I decided, you know, this is cool, but I want to be a doctor when I grow up. And I took some classes and I applied, and I went to medical school. And in medical school, I was trying to figure out, how do I, you know, how do I close the gap with some of my classmates who had PhDs and lots of research experience? What is it I want to do? How can I be everything my patients will need me to be? Because a a good friend of mine from undergrad in theater, when he found out I'd applied to medical school six, 10 years later, called me up and said, hey, what are you doing? Now it is brain (laughs) surgery, right? We used to say to each other, it's not brain (laughs) surgery. And now it was brain surgery. Like, When I mess up, people would die, right? So how do I do this very, very well? That was important to me. And and there were lots of suggestions. The faculty at my school had, had no end of things that I should be doing. You should be running this club and you should be engaging in this research and you should be excelling in these academic areas and you should be out reading, you know, reading every minute you're awake and learning every minute you're awake. Oh, and by the way, what were we learning? Stress is the new smoking. Tell your patients to avoid stress at all costs. And I was probably more stressed than I'd ever been in my life. Not unhappy, but definitely more stressed than I'd yeah. ever been in my life at that point. And I thought, are they trying to kill us then? What, <laughs> what exactly, how do you reconcile? Study as hard as you can and study, and, and you know, stress yourself out intentionally, take on all of these huge goals and activities. And at the same time, what you're studying is run away from stress. And I thought this, this does not fit together in the puzzle where, how do you navigate this? How do you thread this needle? And so I got very interested in what stress is and what it isn't. And so I paid attention to this. I asked a lot of people, a lot of questions from neonatologists to psychiatrists, you know, everybody in between. And it, it was not a sudden epiphany. It was years for me to figure out that stress is a tool, not a toxin. Just like any tool, you can bash your head in with it if you don't know how to use it right, or it gets away from you. Yes. And actually for me, I discovered that a better analogy for stress was exercise. And I have to be honest here and say, I, I don't love exercising. I like to have done it, but I don't <laughs> like to do it. So it's like the dishes. I like it when they're done. So, so I started looking at this, like, okay, we exercise, we stress our bodies to strengthen them. Is that true of our minds? Is that true of resilience? Is that true of mental health? Is that true of our capabilities? Because, okay, Michelle, will you do a a little exercise with me? Sure, of course. Right now it's 2021. So I'd love for you to think about this season five years ago it's 2016, maybe you'll picture how old your kids were, or where Mm -hmm. you lived, or where you worked. something, put yourself in that time. And don't tell me what it was, but bring into your mind whatever was the most stressful thing that you were dealing with at that time. Okay. So, okay, you
1: got it? Oh, yeah, I got it. If
0: I I had known you, if I'd been good friends with you then, and I'd run into you then, and I'd say, hey, Michelle, what's going on? And you told me about whatever that was, and you don't have to tell me what it was. I don't want you to. I just want you to think about it. And then I said to you, because I'm a doctor and we do this, okay, on a scale of one to 10, Michelle, how bad is it? Five years ago, what number would you have given? The 10 being the worst stress you can imagine. Five years ago, what number would you have given what you were going through?
1: Um, it was probably
0: a Seven. Okay. So, and I invite anyone who's listening or watching to do this exercise with us, put yourselves back there five years ago, picture where you were living or where you were working or how old your family was or something that puts you in that time and think about what was the most stressful thing. And on a scale of one to 10, if you'd seen a good friend and they'd asked you whatever number you would have given them. So Michelle, you just gave me a seven.
1: Mm -hmm. I want
0: you to imagine, um, and you have to be a little flexible in your imagination because of course your life has changed. But if you had that stressor now in 2021, what number would you give it on a scale of one to 10? A one. Because you have strengthened yourself. Yeah. Now, I am not saying what doesn't kill you makes you stronger because in my professional experience, what doesn't kill you usually makes you miserable. So, <laughs> The good news about this is that we don't have to just wait for hard things to happen to us and the people that we love. We don't have to just wait for difficulty to come at our kids or come at us and then hope that it makes us stronger. That's a little like training for a marathon by losing your car in the parking lot and wandering around looking for it. It's Mm -hmm. not efficient Mm -hmm. and it's annoying as heck. The good news about resilience and mental health is that we can, we do get stronger when we go through difficulty almost always, even though it's awful, but we can build that resilience and mental health on purpose Just like we build our physical fitness on purpose through exercise. And I, I can't make exercise awesome and I can't make stress awesome, but I can explain how to target the stress you choose. That's what I figured out in medical school. And subsequently, it's that it's about choosing the either unavoidable or useful stress that will make you stronger and walking away from the stress that's only damaging.
1: Yeah, I was gonna actually ask you, is it almost like a muscle, a resiliency muscle that you're exercising and you know you're consciously working on? It's just a whole bunch.
0: Those eight yeah. skills
1: that I mentioned, yeah, I'm actually
0: shameless plug. I'm right this second writing a book. I'm 70% of my way through ah. a book about each of those eight skills and exercises you can choose to do to build them. None of which, by the way, involve adversity or harming yourself or making yourself miserable in any way. So when we say, Okay, what I want is for me or for the people on my work team or for my kids at home to be more resilient, we don't have to set them up to fail or we don't have to intentionally force them into a situation that we know will be a struggle. We can take the opposite approach and say, we're going to train up now so that when you face difficulty,
1: yeah.
0: it isn't a, you don't feel as winded. It isn't as difficult for you to deal it.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's true because I always have found, I've had many situations in my life that have been stressful that i think have built a lot of resiliency within myself and when i go through a hard season i just look back to well you've you've navigated this you've navigated this the more situations you have the more you have maybe i don't know if confidence is the right word but the sense of practice enough, of your practice, you practice yes that you know and it's funny that you mentioned that you know don't, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger the song you're saying in medicine no that's not a good <laughs> good analogy, but I was thinking about that song before I talked to you. I was thinking of Kelly Clarkson's song and right. just that, that expression in general. Um, and, and
0: I don't mean to discount the strength that we
1: draw on and that we build in exactly the way you're talking about it, but it's not a great
0: training plan.
1: No, agreed. Right? Agreed. But let me yeah. ask you though, because it's so interesting. If you Google pretty much any disease, one of the potential triggers is always stress. We mm-hmm. talked about that in medical school, they're always telling you avoid stress, avoid stress, because it can be contribute to heart disease or whatever, whatever element or disease. So how do we recognize when we're getting to that point where, okay, now maybe it's harmful versus helpful. Like what, how do we, how do we identify? And then how do we navigate that?
0: That's one of the crucial questions as we navigate our lives. And so there are a couple of different ways to think about it. One is I hope that everybody has a pretty clear understanding of what red flags are, like, yeah. you, like chest pain to a heart attack. When you find yourself abusing a substance, um, ruining your own desirable relationships, harming yourself, not meeting your own body's needs, not sleeping at all, way overeating or undereating, right? Those are red flags where we're putting ourselves in immediate danger, those are red flags. What you're asking about, I think, Michelle, is a better question, which is what are the yellow flags? What comes before the red flag?
1: Yes. (laughs) Yes. Before you're in the danger zone. Yes. Right. And so I
0: actually do this exercise with audiences that I speak to and that I train. I say, "I I don't know your yellow flags, but you do. And one of the things that I've really appreciated about the pandemic in virtual meetings is the opportunity to pull people of a group Anonymously. So I'm mm-hmm. meeting with 10 people or a thousand people. And I say, we're all going to see your answers, but we're not going to know who said what. That's so you great. get some cover. So I would love for you to tell me. And then I get really specific. I said, so I'm going to, I'm going to ask you, Michelle, but I'm going to answer because I don't want to put you on the spot. <laughs> I would ask, okay, so what are some of the things that you do or don't do, feel or don't feel, notice about yourself when things are just Starting to get to be a little too much for you. What are some behaviors or feelings that you don't like that you notice, or the absence of ones that you do like? And so, for example, for me, I can tell you, I start to lose stuff. Can't find my keys, um, or I forget about appointments. I have a really good schedule brain. If my, if you were to mention today that August fourth you have a dentist appointment, I would wake up the morning of August fourth and be like, Oh, Michelle has a dentist appointment today. <laughs> Not on purpose. And maybe it replaces some other actually useful knowledge in my brain, <laughs> whatever. That's how my brain works. And when I'm starting to get overwhelmed, I notice that I've forgotten to remind my kid about an orthodontist appointment that he that he has, or I have totally failed to um remember that it was crazy hat day for my kids' sixth grade class. Like those things usually stick in my head, and I start mm-hmm. to lose those things. So those are a couple of yellow flags for me. You know. And if you don't, if you can't think of any, and I mean this for everyone listening, ask the people closest to you because they know <laughs> whether <laughs> it's your admin at work or your partner that you live with or a kid, if you have one, they know what your yellow flags are.
1: Yeah. No, that's great. And, you know, I could imagine not sleeping well or the I don't know. of any of the things that yeah. I've noticed. Right.
0: You're reaching for the ice cream before you reach for dinner. You know, whatever, <laughs> right? You know, going you're, craving sugar more than that, normal. That you're surprised that the wine bottle that usually lasts all week is empty by Thursday, right? Got so, it. A lot of a lot of yellow flags, you know, red flags could have could have early warning signs in and of themselves. But I'm actually hoping we can catch it even before that, before we do any damage to our bodies or to our minds. So it involves really mining the expertise you have in yourself. You are an expert in you. Yeah, And you got to notice.
1: Yeah. And I love that. Okay. So if you are in the yellow zone, how do you then focus on resiliency and managing that stress versus going to the the red zone?
0: Of those, of those eight skills, I'm going to mention two that are really useful when you're starting to feel overwhelmed. Okay. One is setting boundaries. Resilient people do well at setting boundaries. An example that I give in my my TED talk that dropped a couple of months ago is that I made a rule during the pandemic that you were not allowed to talk to me while I was in the bathroom unless there was fire or bleeding.
1: <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> I thought that was very funny. But and good, you know, good. I'm, I'm a single
0: mom of four guys between the ages of at the time 11 and 17. So this was a really good boundary, and just knowing that if they knew I was in the bathroom, they would only talk to me if it was actually an emergency. It, it really allowed me to take a deep breath. It's a really micro example. There are lots of ways that we can learn to set boundaries. One of the hard things for women in particular is that I say setting boundaries and you hear say no to people that need you. And that is not what I'm saying. Yeah. Not what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to say yes to the people that need you within boundaries so that you can continue to say yes to the people that need you. Love it. And and this is hard, I'm asking you to recognize that you are one of the people who need you.
1: Mm, It's beautiful. Love that. Love. It's hard, hard. especially Especially for for women and ambitious women too, who, you know, are so driven and want to get so much done all the time. Yeah.
0: Okay. You said there was two. The second skill that I'd really like you to call on at this point is managing discomfort. And this is again, a place that you're really an expert. Um, Michelle, when you don't like how you feel, when you want to change your mood, what's something lovely, really admirable, or really aspirational that you like to do? Go for a walk. Great. That's such a good example. Because, first of all, me listening, I could do that. I am lucky enough to be able bodied and I could go for a walk. So I'm hearing that and I'm like, oh, also, it's good for you. Even if you weren't uncomfortable in some way and you went for a walk, it would be a healthy choice. Now, I will disclose that one of the things that I do when I don't like how I'm feeling that maybe isn't quite as admirable is I play a video game on my phone. It's not harmful, right? It's not shameful. We all have a range of things that we do. We have some that are really admirable, some that are pretty neutral, and some that are damaging when we are uncomfortable. So one of the things that you can do in times of stress and in times of calm is work on your list. And I have an activity that I that I do often. I'm going to do it actually with a, a group of 118 to 24-year-olds next week that I'm doing a staff training at an overnight camp. Wow. And we're gonna I'm going to have them each make a list that is only for them. They can throw it in the campfire that night, but a list of every single thing they can think of that they do when they don't like how they feel. And then we're going to scratch out everything that's damaging to them or to someone else. What they're left with, we copy over to the middle list, and that's everything you do to manage how how you feel, to manage your discomfort, that's either positive or neutral. And then that group, I'm going to have them circle the ones they can do while they're at camp. But for you at home, I might suggest that you put a K by the ones you can do when you're with your kids. You put a W by the ones you can do while you're at work, right? You put a P by the ones you can do when you're around your parent. And when you copy that list over on the right, you are going to have a toolbox of things you can do to manage your discomfort in whatever situation is right then, the most difficult for you. And managing your discomfort is a way of, and this gets to the heart of what you're asking about, all these illnesses, all these difficulties, that they say stress is one of the causes. So stress isn't the cause. It is not that if you are late paying your car payment, Michelle, you're more likely to have a heart attack. It's that if you are late paying your car payment, and you read that notice, and your heart rate goes up, And your stomach acid starts to churn, and your breathing changes, and your blood pressure changes, and that happens to you for a long enough time, or on top of underlying health issues, Hmm. then it could make you more prone to a heart attack. It is the chemical's fault. If you hated chemistry in high school, I'm about to vindicate you. (laughs) It's the cortisol and the adrenaline's fault. It's not the car payment's fault. So it's not the stress. It's the stress reaction in your body. And what managing discomfort does is it teaches you to lower that stress reaction in
1: your body. And I love that. And there's a good distinction. It's the stress. It's not the stress. It's the stress reaction. It's what's actually happening body. to you physiologically.
0: Yeah. Cortisol your mind, pumping. Right? The, all yeah. the chemicals that are released in your brain and that, what that causes and the chemicals that that cascades into your body, um, the, insulin resistance that can develop and the glucose that spikes and that there's so many different chemicals that change in our bodies when we experience a stressor because of that threatened we feel threatened and our body has a very predictable very useful reaction to threat the problem is our brains don't differentiate between one car payment that i forgot to pay and i actually have enough money in the bank for and a shark behind me in the water It right. just says, threat. So if we can learn, and this is one of the reasons that people who do yoga and mindfulness and nature and all that say, I feel much better. It's not that they have managed to always pay their car payment on time. It's that they have managed to change their stress reaction in their
1: bodies. I know growing up, we, I am um, Gen X, I don't know if you are. Okay. You're I'm shaking your head. You're yep. Gen X. Uh, we went through a lot of stuff as kids. I don't think we talked much to our parents about a lot that maybe I should speak for myself, but talking to a lot of my friends, you know, a lot of things when, you know, just happened and you just dealt with it. Not like necessarily some, you know, good, bad, whatever. Um, but kids today, it's a little bit different. I feel like, uh, we're, I feel like we're way more involved and maybe it's because that's just a natural evolution of parenting. You know what I mean? Like each generation does what they consider is better. But what are you seeing based on being a family physician? You're shaking your head. So I feel like you're something you want I'm to talk seeing, about here.
0: Yeah, I do. I'm seeing a couple of things. One is communication is fantastic, right? We know that if we want to build resilience. Yeah. Just like let's say one of your kids came to you and they're like, you know what? I want to get stronger. I I need a trainer or I'm going to do these videos I saw on YouTube and I want to get physically stronger, build my stamina, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. In general, that might be fine with you. But if they'd recently had an injury or if they were doing that and they got hurt, you'd want to know about that. You'd be Mm -hmm. like, Hey, I think you might need some physical therapy first or let's check in with your doctor. Or are you getting enough water? Or I'm noticing, noticing this weight change, whatever it is. We want to know what's going on with our kids and, for them to communicate with us so that if they do too much at once, they can have some backup because, you know, they're immortal. Just ask them. So <laughs> in that in that same way, when someone's going through a lot of stressors, we want to be communicating with them. It's protective for us to make sure that the stressors, and one of the things we know for sure is that teenagers now face more performance stress and academic and achievement-oriented stress that and that seems far more than the pandemic and social isolation to be driving the
1: increased rates of mental illness in teens. It is so, that's more than the pandemic. It's the for pressure for sure. Okay. So
0: and it is um, absolutely that is particular, especially a disease of affluent kids, right? So uh, of race is less impactful than the affluence of the family and the educational level of the parents. So. When, although all teenagers are experiencing this. So if my child is dealing with you know, this many AP classes and this much test pressure and these thoughts about their future and has a close friend who gets diagnosed with a chronic illness, a serious illness, boy, we want to know what's going on because we can say, hey, I think that might be the straw. I think this might be a lot for you. So can you yeah. tell me how you're doing? So communication is really valuable. But- we are harming our kids, and I can say that because there's research behind it, not just my own, but lots of research behind it. Yeah. We are harming our kids with our um, tracking, academics tracking, geographic tracking, and social <laughs> tracking, right? We track our kids in at least three ways okay. uh, right now, and, and there's a lot of judgment on parents who don't. You know, what do you mean you've, for example, my junior in high school, and he's my second at this public high school in our city. My third one will be a freshman this coming year. And we're a parent-teacher check-in. And I go, because I'd like to hear how my kid's doing, if there's anything they're worried about. I always make my kid come with me, but I go. And I, she said, well, you've probably seen in the, um, the school app, right? And I said, oh, I've, I've never gone in there. It's a ninth through 12th school. My kids don't get there until they're 14 or 15 years old, yeah. right? She's yeah. like, she gasped, this young teacher quite literally <laughs> gasped. I said, I didn't get logins. And she's like, oh, I can get them for you. I said, no, no, it's not that they weren't provided for me. I intentionally have never logged in because my kid's academic experience is their responsibility. Yeah. Um, and this woman obviously thinks I'm one of the worst parents that's ever crossed that's her. And funny. in a public school where, you know, in an urban public school, yeah, yeah. in any case, The I understand that it is a shocking thing to say. And I will often say when I'm speaking in front of parent groups, this is one of the most provocative things I'm going to say tonight. Please stop tracking your children. You're driving up their anxiety. Research proven. You're driving up your anxiety. And it doesn't help them. It doesn't save them. It doesn't save lives. It doesn't improve academic performance in the long run. Right? It can improve short-term academic performance. It does not improve academic success. Yeah. Uh, as measured by what? As measured by matriculation and graduation Mm. from post-secondary education.
1: Okay. So for those parents who do track or whatever, and some may not track in all three, but like you said, whatever might be a trigger point for them or whatever. um, What? It's if I'm understanding you, it's really just having good communication with your kid and knowing that they're going not, to, not, yeah. you know, we want that to be two ways. And I've
0: had parents say, well, but I, if I had great communication from my kid, I wouldn't feel the need to track them. Here's what I have to say about that. Yeah. I think tracking is intermittently useful when they've just been grounded. So I've tracked my son's location like this. I've said, Hey, so you were just grounded for two weeks for going to a party that you were told you couldn't go to. For the next two weeks, you may go back out into the world socially, but anytime I ask you to, you have to drop a pin on WhatsApp showing me where you are and take a picture of what you're looking at. Anytime I text you and ask you to. Different than leaving a tracker on and handing your phone to a friend. (laughs) (laughs) And let them go wherever, to the like, library. <laughs> and so, like, take, take a selfie where you are. Drop a pin and take a selfie whenever I ask you to. So, so for two weeks. Because, because it's a privilege. Autonomy is a privilege. And I completely get that. However everything our kids need to be able to do when they're 18 or 20, or whenever you consider your kid an adult, they have to learn to do before that. So we have to practice letting go. And sometimes we have to grab the rope again because they prove themselves completely unready, (laughs) unprepared for this moment, but that we have to always be in the process of letting go.
1: Okay. I love it. So two-way communication though. He's not.
0: You can't guarantee two-way communication. You can't. So, you're
1: saying. You're saying you're you have to be right. as the parent. So you
0: have to communicate, and you can make it really clear. You can say, "Hey, so uh, I need you to, unprompted, communicate with me what time you expect to be home, and get to me five minutes before that if you're not going to make it. If you can't do those things, I'm going to go back to turning on Life 360 or whatever it was you were okay. using,
1: right?
0: It, it, because it is a, an evolving contract. But one of the things that happens is that we hold, 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 hold. And I work with student affairs offices at universities all around the country. And what they tell me is that they get students who are academically prepared and prepared in no other way to mm. be on their own. Mm. So we have to always be in the process of letting go so that we can see. And I'm not saying throw them off the bridge and walk away and figure that if something goes terribly wrong, you'll hear about it on the news. I mean, take. One step back and offer empathy without intervention most of the time.
1: Love it. It makes sense. It makes sense, not depending situationally on whatever it is. And because
0: about 2% of the time, they need to be rescued for sure. Yeah. But about 98% of the time, they need our empathy and our attention. And we need to bite our tongues and sit on our hands. And even though we could absolutely fix it, and we know exactly what they need, we have to let them become problem solvers.
1: Yeah. 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 We're launching a, them into the world, please. Yes. I heard a great speaker
0: yesterday who said, you know, we have this myth that there are different kinds of learners that some people are auditory and some people are kinesthetic. And he said, it, it doesn't just depend on the learner. It depends on what you're learning. So for example, no one is an auditory learner for ice skating. Nobody yeah. listens to someone ice skate and then ice skates. Good point. Right. We have to do it. And problem solving is a Cognitive and kinesthetic activity, we have to actually do it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's as a parent, that's also developing, flexing that resiliency muscle, right? Too. And just so building hard. That.
0: It's so hard. Planned obsolescence, right? Putting ourselves out of a job, saying to your child, <laughs> how old are your kids,
1: Michelle? I have, well, I have a bonus son who's 25, but I've known him since he was seven. And my daughter's almost 13. So okay. just the middle school. So I. Good. Getting so to that when, point probably where the friends are starting to make the plans without the parent. I mean, it's that interesting transition, right? Yeah.
0: So when your 12, 13, 23-year-old daughter comes to you and says, oh, this, here's my suggestion. Start by saying, I'm so glad you brought this to me. Like, I, I'm, I'm really, I really appreciate and value that you're talking to me about this. Thank you. Second thing, before you tell me more, are you here for empathy, advice, or intervention? Hmm. And then assuming it's not that she gets to decide because of what she tells you is that one of her friend's lives is at risk. She's getting intervention no matter what she wanted, Right. right? Because you, you decide that's that 2%. But in general, if nobody is in actual danger, yep. and this goes back to that managing discomfort part of resilience, you have to learn to differentiate between discomfort and danger. So if nobody is in actual danger, it's just terribly, terribly uncomfortable then we have to give our kid what they ask for. We have to say, okay, because here's what happens. And the research shows that 85% of the time when teens bring a problem to an adult, they only want empathy. They, They don't think you can solve it or they're not asking you to solve it. They just want empathy. So if you ask, if you actually give them that multiple choice and she says, mom, I just want empathy, then that's a problem for you because you want to give advice or you want to intervene. But if you ask and nobody's in actual danger, then you give her what she asked for. But By doing that, you are building her trust. You are making it so much more likely that when someone is in danger, she will come to you. And you are teaching her that empathy is enough, that she is a pretty good problem solver, and you trust her to try, not to succeed, but to try to navigate this herself. Because when, and people say to me, why is tracking my kids such a problem? It is learned helplessness. It is sending your child the message you are not okay in the world without me beside you. Mm. You are not okay in the world if I don't know where you are all the time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. This is great. This is so good. Um, Let me just ask, can you give maybe, so we were just talking about kids and maybe the tips are the same, but maybe can we leave the women with like one or two resiliency tips? I mean, we've covered some stuff already that maybe an adult could use too, just in terms of building that muscle. I know there's eight skill sets. We've covered a couple already, but.
0: So one of the things, and, and women know this, uh, I think really readily, one of the ways that we are more resilient is by building connections. Um, if I don't know how to do something, and Michelle, you and I are doing it right now. We've never met. But after this, if one of us had a problem that we thought the other one could solve, we could reach out. Totally. Right. I could shoot you an email that says, hey, Michelle, you mentioned this, or you have a 25-year-old bonus son, and I just have a question about that because my eldest is 19, and I just wanted to ask you. So building connections wider, like we're doing right now, yeah. and deeper. There's lots of people in your life, and you don't even know what you don't know about them. So picking somebody, and we can build our connections deeper in three different ways. We can build it through curiosity. Hey, you know, what's, what, what's the, like, the most interesting thing you've ever experienced that surprised you. And now I know something about you that I didn't know before. Yeah. We can build it through gratitude. I can send you a message tomorrow and I might that says, Hey, I really appreciated the, the level of preparation you had or the depth of your questions or just how comfortable you made me feel or your willingness to play my goofy games while we were talking. That'll deepen our connection or a kindness I might recognize that as the mom of someone who's 12 turning 13, you might be really interested in this post that I saw that's about navigating TikTok with your kid when they want to become a creator. Mm -hmm. And I might just shoot it to you and be like, hey, I don't know if this is useful to you. I just thought of you and your daughter with it. Any of those things, any sort of curiosity or gratitude or kindness. And that's an activity from my new book that you can do any of those and deepen or widen your connections. And the more connections we have at our disposal. It doesn't mean we have to feel connected all the time and we have to be extroverts if we're not. And I'm not saying that, right. but the more connections that we have at our disposal, the less we feel like we have to handle it all alone. It's so true.
1: And I can't tell you how many times you're like sitting with a challenge and you talk to a friend who's got the kid who's whatever, a couple of years older or, or whatever. And you just mention it and they're like, Oh yeah. We went through this. This is what, and then suddenly, a don't feel alone, and b now you actually have a sounding board to process. And, and then... sometimes
0: you get a hack. When I was having, I was pregnant with my third child, and I called my friend who had three, and I said, "How do you hold their hands in a parking lot?" And she said, "You get a buggy. She's <laughs> right? Like either, either like a, a kid stroller yeah. or a grocery cart, and every one of them has to be touching the cart all the time. And then suddenly you have both your hands free. It's amazing."
1: right just those little things that right we' we don't have to figure it all out on our own. I, I've loved everything that you've shared I know you're working on the book I know on your website you've got tons of trainings and stuff. Where can I direct people to learn more about you, Dr. G's in case Um, people want to go deeper?
0: Yeah. Thank you. The easiest place for people to find me is my website, which is askdrg.com. And I will tell you every email I get through contact, I see myself and I will respond. So if you have a question for me or an audience you think I should be speaking for or a podcast that I can have a conversation with you on, I would be grateful. And I really appreciate your time, Michelle. This has been a lot of fun for me.
1: Oh, thank you. I've had a great time and I feel like I've learned so much. Thank you so much for your time today. Have a great day. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I hope you gained some new information or inspiration for your life, that is that the essence of this show is to really wake up to what's possible for you to reclaim your beautiful voice and to really learn to love and prioritize yourself. So if you gained any value from any of the conversations you've tuned into,